Good morning. I figured I would get up here while they were transitioning, just real quick, uh, just to echo the uh, words of Tim and just to tell you as a church, uh, thank you. Um, each year when we get a chance to take a month and uh, take some time with our families to read and to reflect, uh, that time is just so good and it's so huge uh, for us. Um, I've been a pastor for about as long as I've been married, um, and one thing that I've found out is that um, there's been this constant right line that's that's uh, that's been drawn. So my wife knows that in some way um, she has to share me with the church as a pastor, uh, but we kind of find ourselves on this line where it goes from she feels like she has to share me with the church uh, to where she feels like uh, she's in competition with the church for my heart and for my affection and for my time. And um, being gone this past month, I think one thing that I shared with her and I really wanted to share with you all is that um, I've been a pastor for about as long as I've been married. And I think the biggest indictment on me, what I saw this past month, um, is that I think for the past 10 years, I've been a better pastor than I've been a husband um, and a father. And at the end of the day, uh, that makes for being a terrible pastor. Um, so I'm grateful for the time that uh, we got off. It was good time for us to step back. No traveling, no speaking, no other obligations. I was just at home. Um, I would have been at home all day, but my wife says, John, you can't be at home all day because you mess things up when you're here. So you got to get out the house and go somewhere. Uh, so I spent half of my days reading, writing, and then the back half of the days I spent at home with my wife and my daughter. And, and, and it was good, sweet time. I got to so see my daughter take her first steps and just things like that that I would have met. Right. Amen. Because now that she can walk, she can go back there. Right. Um, so. Yeah, I saw all of that, and so, yeah, I just, I just want to continue to tell you, uh, I feel like I have the greatest job in the world. I love this church. I love you all. I really feel like you are my family, and I'm grateful to God for that. And so thank you for the way that you take care, not just of me, but the rest of the pastors um, that we have on staff. So, all right, uh, with that being said, let's get in last week. I heard Tim was up here trying to take my spot. <laughs> I need this job, Tim. Um, Tim was 40 minutes, too. I checked on the podcast, so I said, I got to do better. So stand with me. Stand with me as we um, read from God's word. It's only going to be four verses, so I shouldn't go very long. We'll be in the book of Titus. We're starting a brand new series in Titus. And the book starts off and it says, it's Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed to us, uh, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith. 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you that once you saved us, um, you didn't leave us by ourselves, but you sent your spirit inside of us, Lord, to um, change us and to make us new, Father. Lord, I'm grateful that once you saved us, you didn't just snatch us up and take uh, us to be with you, but you left us here in the world to do good work. And so I pray that we would do just that. Change us by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you can take your seat. Uh, my first day of work was not what I thought it would be. Summer of 2000, I was 16 years old. I got a job at Chuck E. Cheese. Um, and I thought my first day of work would just be out there on the floor with kids, but it was not. My first day of work, they put me into a back room, and I sat down, and I was in a classroom all day. It was orientation. I was bored out of my mind. I thought that it was worthless um, until I got out on the floor that first day, and I saw um, I was overwhelmed, but at least I was oriented. At least I knew what I should have done when I found myself face to face with um, thousands of little kids that were uh, hyped up on sugar and they had this superhuman strength and stamina and I saw them in this cesspool of germs that was the ball pit, right? Like lying, cheating, uh, literally backbiting. So they were sinking their teeth into the backs of other little kids and it was chaos and things would have been a mess had they not had a staff that they oriented. I was overwhelmed. But what an orientation does is it makes sure that when you face things that are overwhelming, at least you can still function. This is what takes place in every job, because you and I know this, uh, people do not drift towards discipline and order. People drift towards disorder and dysfunctionality. So when you get a job or when you start a class or when you find yourself in a new place, the very first thing that takes place is an orientation. They bring you in and they clarify your role, what it is that you're here for. If you're a cashier, right, they give you money. The money is not yours, so don't spend it on yourself. That money is for you to serve. If you're a police officer, they'll give you a badge and a gun and handcuffs. That's not for you to use to terrorize people. It's for you to use to serve. So you get the, the they clarify your role so that they make sure that you're useful. And then they give you a goal. This is what you are to do with what you have so that peace will take place. Here's what takes place. If an orientation is not existent, if you find yourself in a new role, but you don't have an orientation that tells you what your role is or what your goal is, you'll hurt people with what you have. You won't help them. A cashier would steal money and find themselves in jail. A policeman that's not oriented rightly to what he would do will terrorize folks, as we've seen some do, and make it hard for the good ones to do their job. Even a Starbucks employee that is not 
oriented as to the right way to use a telephone in case of emergencies can hurt people. So what takes place? When you find folks that don't know what they are to do with what they have, you do an orientation. Or if people forget what they are to do, you do a reorientation. You shut things down and you just make sure that we're all on the same page. I say all of this because you and I have been given something better than the best job. We've been given salvation. God has saved us, but he saved us and he left us here. And so what that means is there's something that you and I are to do. And I'm, we're starting this new series in the book of Titus called Community Under Construction because there's some of us in this room that have received the gift of salvation, but we've never been instructed as to what our role is or what the goal is. We walked an aisle. We were dunked in water, and we were sent out of the back door to do our thing. There's some of us in here that have been in church for a long time, and we've continued to be oriented to what we should do and who we should be, but we just haven't been paying attention because we've been so concerned with what we're going to do at 1230 or after church is done. And all of us are forgetful. Christians leak. All of us need to be reminded of why it is that we're here. Because let me tell you, if you misuse the salvation that God has provided to you, you will end up harming people in feeling like you are superior to them and condescending, starting to judge based on the things that they struggle with that you don't. Or at the end of the day, you'll just be unhelpful and you'll use the salvation and the grace and peace that God gave you to enjoy a guilt-free life, to enjoy a life that's full of peace, but disconnected from the problems of the world, never helping the very people that God left you in this world to help. So the question that I want to spend our time on is this. Why have I been given the gift of salvation? Right? Not why did God save me? God saved me because of his mercy and his kindness. But what was the purpose for which God gave me salvation and left me here in the world? And that's where we are when we get to the introduction, the first four verses of the book of Titus. Titus is a book that a guy by the name of Paul wrote to this young pastor named Titus. Paul's trying to, in these first four verses, not just orient him to what it means to be a pastor. He's trying to orient him to what it means to be a Christian. So it is applicable for all of us. Paul writes this to him because he finds there's a group of folks that's much like us that would gather in a place much like this on a day like today. But Paul is concerned that all of these new churches that are starting to pop up have people that have accepted the gift of salvation, but they're not using it for anything. So, so Paul writes this book at the end of the day to help them know what salvation is for. And we're going to walk through this book in four weeks, but here's what I want to do briefly. Um, when the Bible was written, uh, the chapters and verses were not put in there when they wrote, right? So Paul's not like 
writing and saying, all right, hey, uh, this seems like a good place to stop for verse 1. Verse 2, uh, Paul's writing this whole thing as a letter, as a whole. The verses and chapters were brought on in the 13th and the 16th century to help you and I reference God's word. So it helps when we take a small text like this to really get a sense of the whole book. You can do this when you go home. It takes less than 10 minutes to read through the book. I'm just going to walk you through the message and the point of the whole book. We're going to highlight a few verses, and then we're going to uh, get in. So Paul starts off with that first part. Then he goes right into and he tells Titus, hey, Titus, um, there are two groups of folks that are trying to set themselves up to lead this church. There's good guys and there's bad guys. I want you to prop up the good guys, and I want you to do your best to crop out the, the bad guys. And then in verse 15, he ends off like this, and he says this, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Look, he says there's a group of folks, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So Paul sees this group of folks, and Paul is trying to tell Titus not just to be concerned with the content that comes out of their mouth, but the way that they live, because salvation is supposed to lead to good works. It's supposed to lead to something that gets done. And chapter 2, he goes on, and after the church is cleaned up, he talks about what your role is as a Christian in your family. And he starts off and says this, but I want you to proclaim things that are consistent with sound teaching. And then he goes and he tells how the men are to relate to the young guys, how the old women are to relate to the younger women. And then he goes on and says this, look, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything to bad to say about you. So once again, he's trying to bring in this emphasis of good works. And then what he does is he roots this all in the grace of God, what God has done for us. And he says this, look, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And grace does more than just save you from sin. Grace does this. It instructs us, it teaches us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, look, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, what? Eager to do good works. Then in the next chapter, in verses in 3-1, he talks about what their role is in the world. And he says this, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for what? Every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. 
Not by works of righteousness that we had done. So we're not saved by the works that he's done. But according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit abundantly on us. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace. We might become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. And if that's not enough, he ends off the book and says this. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. I'm just trying to give you a sense of the whole because the point that I make is going to be very simple and we're going to move through this very, very quickly. I want you to hear this. You were saved to serve. You were saved to serve. God did not save you just so that you could enjoy the pleasures of this world guilt-free, not being involved in anybody else's problems or mess. God did not save you so that you can have an easy life here en route to your way to glory. God saved you because he has a construction project in the works here in the world and he has a specific role for you to be a part of, a, a specific role for you to save or to play. You were saved to serve. And there's three things that I think this text helps us with. It helps us with our role, it helps us with our goal, and it helps us with our soul. Our role, our goal, and our soul. I'll start with our role. Verse 1a, it says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, one of the best things in the world is when somebody knows their role. One of the most frustrating things in the world is when somebody doesn't. Um, we've started playing ball twice per week at the gym, me and a bunch of guys here at the church. And there's this one guy that we met at the, the, the gym um, who, you know, he comes in um, and he looks like a ball player, right? He's got the headband, the wristband, the knee pads, the compression shorts that go like, three quarters of the way down, the socks pulled up, the nice shoe, creases in his short. Uh, he looks the part, uh, but most of the time when a guy comes in like that, he's overcompensating um, for a lack of skill and or judgment. Most times it's both of them. So there's this one guy that plays with us. Uh, he's not He's not a part of the church, um, and he's not very good. Uh, so a few weeks ago, he was on our team. We played, and we won, and so at the end, I'm trying to be, you know, a good guy. And I'm like, yo, let me get your phone number. I'll hit you up next time. So I text him, um, and I'm like, hey, it was great playing with you, um, which was a lie, but it was a good lie. Uh, great playing with you. Um, yeah, I'll be glad to see you on Thursday. Um, and he replied, yeah, man, I had fun too. Uh, Pass me the ball next time, LOL. And so I thought, clearly, this is a guy that doesn't know his role. Um, and I just said, likewise, I was going to say the same thing uh, to him. But what you find is when a guy doesn't know his role, it's frustrating because he, 
spends his time trying to prove that he's something that he's not. Look, Paul is not like that. Here's what I love about Paul. Paul is a guy that knows his role, right? So Paul's going to, at the end of this, say, all right, Paul, and there's two things that he's going to call himself, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was somebody, right, at this time there were these 12 men that saw Jesus raised from the dead, and they were specifically charged by God, right, to kind of set the foundation of this whole thing that you and I call Christianity. It was an honored position. People looked at it, and they were amazed and in awe. And although Paul talks about the authority that he has here, what he does is he leads in with the fact that he's a servant of, of, uh, of God. Paul embraces that although he has this particular task that people might look to and see is full of all of this glory, Paul says, the most important thing that I want you to know about myself is that I am a servant of God. Paul saw his existence primarily as being somebody sent to advance not his own agendas, but God, and let me tell you, this is amazing if you know anything about the background of Paul's story. There was no one further from God's plan. There was no one at the time that did more to frustrate God's plans than Paul did. But what God did was God saved him and God changed him, and now you get this guy Paul, who could have spent the rest of his life lamenting and being being in despair and depression over the fact that he did so much to harm the kingdom, but you don't see that. In Paul, you see this guy who sees the most important thing about him is not his past, is not what he's done. The most important thing about him is how he presently relates to God. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up, especially in a place like this, is just the, the takeaway that I want us all to get from that is this. Um, your past doesn't define you. Your relationship with God is the biggest definer of who you are. Stop believing the lie that you are what you've done. Stop believing the lie that you are the worst thing that's been done to you. That's not how the Bible describes our identity at all. Our identity is primarily determined by how you and I relate to God. If you are a part of his family because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your past is still the, it's, it's still your past. It's just not a part of who you are right now. It's not a part of how you refer to yourself. It's not a part of how you let other people refer to or think of you. There is no obstacle, including your past, that God cannot overcome to use him for or to use you for his glory. Paul knows this. He embraces it that at the end of the day, 
He has done so much to frustrate God's plans, but now that he's been saved, now that he's a part of God's family, he sees his role primarily as that of a servant. Somebody, not not just this parked car, somebody that's sent out to be used by God. We live out of the reality of what God says about us. Your past does not define you. You are to live here. Not for your agenda, but for, for God's. That's our role. But it's one thing to know our role. It's another thing to know our role and to not really know our goal. There's this story of this guy who, um, you know, he drives by this barn. And on the side of this barn, he sees all these holes in the barn. And all these holes go right through these bullseyes in the barn. Every one. So he goes to, to the house, he knocks on the door, he talks to the guy, and he says, man, you must be an expert marksman to put a hole through all of these bullseyes. And the guy says, well, not really. Um, I just shoot at the barn, and then I go and I paint the bullseye around the hole that I went to. When it comes to Christianity, some of us treat our Christianity that way. We just kind of take an assessment over all of what we've done. And we say, ah, oh, yeah, I guess that was good, and that was good, and that was good, and that was good. And there's really no goal. We're not aiming at anything. And it's easy to hit the bullseye when you're not aiming at anything. But what Paul does right here is he gives not just his role, but his goal. Look here. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? What's his goal? Why has God called him to serve? Who has God called him to serve? What has he called him to do? Uh, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. What Paul's saying is that I am a servant of God. And do you know what God has called me to do? God has called me to nourish God's people and to make sure that God's people are better off when I leave them than when I found them. Paul's saying my goal is the improvement of people. I want to make God's people more godly. That's Paul's goal. That's what drives him. He talks about not just this faith, but this knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And the question that I want to ask you is this. Um, is that the goal that shapes your experience with people? When you think of the friendships that you have, when you think of the people that you come into contact with, is your goal, I want them to be more godly when I leave them than they were when I found them? Are your neighbors more godly as a result of having experience what it is to live next door to you? Are the people in your apartment complex, do they love God more? Or do they want to hear more about God as a result of being close to you? Is your spouse or are your kids more godly? Is your girlfriend or boy, boyfriend more godly? Are people in your life better as a result of being in relationship with you. That's 
That's Paul's goal here. And the way that he gets there is he says this, look, God placed me here to build up their faith. And then he'll use this phrase, right? And the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So Paul is tying or he's connecting what people know about God to how godly that they live, right? And so you may say, well, John, so are you saying that what I need to do with all of my friends, with all of my friendships, is to have more Bible study with them? Um, And what I'm saying is not necessarily, right? So although Paul ties them together, the reason why I started off saying that our goal is that people are more godly is so that you and I know what the goal is so that as we hear that knowledge is tied to godliness, we don't confuse um, ingredients for the product. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Knowledge is needed to make somebody more godly. Right? Ignorance doesn't make anybody more godly. Not knowing does not make people more godly. So knowledge is a necessary ingredient, but knowledge is not the only ingredient. Right? Think of knowledge like flour and godliness like a cake. You need flour to make a cake. If you do not have flour, it will not be a cake. If you only bake flour, it is not a cake. There's a bunch of other stuff that you need, but you need flour. And so what Paul's saying is, all right, what he's not saying is that no more and you'll be more godly. But he is saying in order for people to be more godly, they have to know God's truth. Don't allow people's abuses of knowledge to make you feel like knowledge isn't useful. So there have been plenty of people that have known a bunch about God's word and have used God's word to justify racism, slavery, sexual abuse, greed, and the list goes on and on and on. But just because people abuse a good thing, we don't throw out the good thing. If you did that, you would be left with nothing good. What we say is, no, no, this is a good thing. They used it wrongly. Let me come in and use it right. At the end of the day, y'all, we are servants, but as Christians, we are people of the truth. We are people that have the revelation from God himself. God is not an introvert. God is not shy. God has been clear with what is on his mind and good news, and he's left us with the truth. We aren't better off by not knowing truth. We're people of the truth, and so what that means is that we need to spend our time making sure that this truth out here gets in here. And the question that I have to ask you is this. Now, what small steps are you taking to grow in truth? Growing in truth is not about big steps. It's all about these small steps. And you may say, 
John, I'm not smart like that. I haven't been to school. I don't have a degree. I just don't really know how to study God's word the way that y'all do. And the only thing that I would say to that is take all that, put that on the shelf. And what I want to leave you with is this. What you put in is what will come out. What this means is that um, you don't have to have great skills or knowledge or insight. Here's a very practical way that you can make sure that you're putting truth inside of you. Um, Memorize scripture. The best thing about that is that you don't even know, you don't even have to know how to read to do it. You can just listen to it over and over, put it in, and you'll be be surprised at what comes out. You'll be even if you don't have tools to know how to break down and parse things out, you you'll be surprised at how much meaning you can get by simply reciting over and over. And how much meaning comes so much later. Um one of the uh one of the most horrifying realizations that I've had as an adult is uh <laughs> When I'm like in the car and a song comes on from my childhood and I recite the lyrics to the songs that was playing in the skating rink when me and my boys was out there skating. Um, And all of a sudden, right, meaning comes out and I think, like, I'm appalled. Like, what what was I singing as an eight-year-old? I want you to know that that truth works in reverse, y'all. It's something about just reciting scripture, getting God's word into you, that the meaning is unlocked, and it's crazy how when you put it in, it always finds a way to come out. There's a few of us here in the life of the church that what we did uh, last month when I was getting ready to go on sabbatical, I took the advice of, of a pastor friend that I know. This guy, um, well, so he's like really smart, you know, a genius, went to MIT, all of that. Um, Throughout his life, he has committed uh, at least 35 books of the Bible to memory. Yo, yo, I said the same thing, and so I asked him how. And what he said was, John, one verse at a time. So he's like, I'd get up in the morning. I take one verse, and I would try to memorize that one verse. Through the day, I would think about that one verse. When I would walk with my daughter at night, I would recite that one verse. And then the next day, I would add one more, and I would repeat the last one that I had. And he said, you would be surprised at how quickly you could grasp that. So the challenge a month ago for a group of folks was, let's try that with the book of Titus. It's 45 verses. It should only take 45 days. In 28 days, folks got it. And it was just there. And it was a part of them. And you're just amazed at how many problems we come into contact with that are solved right here in God's word. We are people of the truth. What comes in is what goes out. You don't have to start big, start small.
Your role is that you are a servant. Your goal is to improve God's people. God's people should be better when you leave them than they were when you found them. And at the end of the day, if this just sounds like, John, this is great, this is all good stuff that I need to try to do, let me see if I can bathe a little bit of this instruction into purpose, right? So Paul's going to say, this is his role, this is our goal to serve God's people, but why? And I think verses 2 through 3 help us see this, look. There's something about the very nature of salvation itself that reminds you and I that we are left here to serve. Look here at verse 2, right? Paul says, you know, I want to give him this faith and this knowledge that leads to godliness. And verse 2 says this, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Really quick, here's what I want to bring out. Paul cements his mission in the middle of the promises of God. So here's what I mean by that. We are people of the in-between. As Christians, we are people of hope. God made this promise, and Paul's going to say, God gave us this promise of eternal life before time began. And what Paul does with that one phrase is he helps us see the nature of a promise is this. The word and the action. Right? Somebody says they're going to do something and then the promise is fulfilled when they do it. It's the promise and it's the fulfillment. So as Paul starts to bring this up about the promise of God, he shows where our hope is, and that's this. As Christians, you and I are future-oriented in our hope. Our hope is future. Our hope is that one day God is going to come and fix this world and make it right. The reason why I say this is because the world that we live in is not about eternal hopes. It's all about earthly hope. Things that we look forward to in this earth. And what the Bible starts to teach us is that every earthly hope is empty or it's heading towards emptiness. So what Ecclesiastes will tell us is pick any earthly hope that you want to. And if that earthly hope is a cup, it's going to have a hole in it. You know the feeling, right, when you, you know, you're thirsty, you grab a cup, you pour some drink into it, and the cup has a hole in it, and so it starts to leak. What's the first thing that you think to do? I got to get another cup and pour this drink in, in, in the cup. The problem is, as it relates to things that we experience in this world, Ecclesiastes tells us that every cup has a hole in it. Knowledge is going to disappoint you because you're going to find out that the world is broken and there's nothing that we can really do to fix it in the here and now. Then he goes on and then he thinks money. Money will disappoint you because it will run out and you'll never have as much as you think that you need to. Sex will disappoint you, especially if it's outside 
of the confines that God has created in marriage? Because what you'll find out is that sex, a thing that is meant for our enjoyment, if it's done outside of the way that God has designed it, it doesn't leave you with lasting fulfillment and peace. It leaves you with guilt and shame. Friendships will disappoint you because people are just as flawed as you are. Your job will disappoint you because one day your role will be obsolete and you'll be let go. And on and on and on. Pick, pick any cup that you want to and it's going to disappoint you. So the Bible tells you and I to reorient ourselves from hoping in things that this earth can provide to a future hope of eternal life with God one day. So it points us forward, but in the same way, look, y'all, this hope is a fixed hope. And here's what I mean by that. Is he says this, in the hopes of eternal life, future, that God had promised when? Before time began. He'll throw out this little phrase that God can't lie uh, just so that you and I kind of sit with this statement of truth. Right? What you see in the creation of the world, at least as the Bible outlines it, is a God that creates by his words so that you and I know that what God says will happen exactly like he says it so that you and I can trust him. But then he makes this thing and he says, look, God promised this hope of eternal life before time began. Why would he bring that up? So that you and I would know that before Adam and Eve did anything to mess up eternal life, God had already promised to fix it. Before you made any mistakes, God promised eternal life. The fulfillment of all the longings of our heart that we go after. But that also means before you did anything good or praiseworthy or noteworthy, God promised eternal life. Do you know why that's so important? God gives us this fixed hope so that our emotions don't waver with the variables that take place in our life. That when you and I mess up, that when you and I fail, we don't panic and think that we've disqualified ourselves from the promises of God because the promises of God were never earned. Your performance is not the most important thing when it comes to your relationship with God. I just want you to hear that in case you're here and you are saying, John, that sounds good. I want to hope in all of those things, but I haven't performed well enough. I haven't done good. I haven't done all the things that God has wanted me to do. And I've done a lot of the things that he didn't want me to do. What I'm saying is this. God made the promise of eternal life before time began so that when you made this objection, he could say... My promise of eternal life doesn't depend on how well you perform. Look at the end of verse 3. How he refers to God 
He refers to him as God, our Savior. Titus is going to do this throughout the book where he talks about Jesus as our Savior, but he's also going to talk about God as our Savior because God is a just judge. One day, we will have the choice. Do you want to be judged based on your works and your sins? Or do you want to be judged on the basis of somebody else's works? So we can choose to be judged by how good that we've done, or we can choose to be judged by how well Christ has done. Regardless of what we choose, God is a just judge. But God is not just a judge. Jesus doesn't like save us from God as if God has us by the legs dangling us right over hell and Jesus swoops in and takes us from God's hand. God is the judge, but God is the very architect and mastermind behind salvation. It was God's plan in the first place. The reason why I want you to hear this is because if you're staying away from God because you view him only as a judge or an enemy or somebody that you've done wrong, you've misunderstood the very nature of God. In chapter 3, verse 4, what Paul says is this. Look, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, it's God's kindness, it's his goodness as a Savior. Not just his fear or fear of him as a judge that leads us to turn and put our hope in him. God makes this promise before time. The only thing that we're left to do in the in-between is to talk about how good God has been, is to remind people of the promises that he's made and the certainty with which he will fulfill those. So as Paul talks about this promise and fulfillment, it's captured, not just in Christ's work, but Paul says this, God has revealed this truth. He's freely given it to people in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. If the gospel, if God's actions in eternity to save hopeless people is the medicine, then it is our proclamation of that that is the capsule that the medicine is in. And God himself has entrusted this to us. And the reason why I say that is that it is a very, very good thing, y'all. The hope 
of humanity, the hope of mankind, is captured in the proclamation that for everybody that's chasing an earthly hope somewhere, it's you and I saying, that earthly hope, it may seem like a good thing, but it'll let you down. I have something else that's much better, and I want you to hear this. Like, as Christians, like, we haven't gotten the short end of the stick. We aren't, like, on the street corner selling something that nobody needs. You have good news to share. God has given you, Christian, very good news to share for people that are accustomed to hearing or experiencing very bad news. Think of when the gospel came to you. Think of the relationship that you put your hope in that fell apart. Think of the job that you put your hope in that you lost. Think of the loved one that you put your security and your hope for joy in that passed. Think of the person that you trusted that let you down. Think of you trying to pick the pieces of your life up and finding no peace. And somebody comes along with this very, very good news that there is a hope that is certain that can never be lost or taken because it's not based on anything that you've learned. This is the good news that we have to share. And if you're not a Christian in here, I want to let you know this is the good news that you need to hear. The God that created you, that wants you to find in him the fulfillment of all the things that you're chasing after in likes, in retweets, in sex, in more money, in relationships, in promotion. The things that you're chasing after aren't found in something. They're found in someone. And the very God who has all of those has been so gracious as to make a way for you to come to him, not based on your performance at all. If that isn't good news, I don't know what is. That's all that I have in terms of the good news, y'all, the best way that you and I can live in between both the promise and the fulfillment is to continually remind people that the God who made this promise before time began is good for not skating out on the check. God's going to complete all that he started. And so what Paul does, this man with no wife or no kids looks at this man, Titus, and he says this to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. He calls him his true son because he knows that the gospel doesn't just make us like family, it actually makes us family. Paul looks at this young Greek boy, and Paul is a Jewish man, is saying, you know, this gospel transcends ethnic lines that the rest of our world would make. He looks at him, he calls him his son, and then he tells him grace and peace. He gives him this 
blessing. Before he tells him to do any of the work that he has for him, we have a life of service in front of us, but this life of service is not a thing that's meant to cause you and I anxiety. This life of service is something that you and I can go into with both grace and peace. I just want to end off with this last thing, y'all. God has left us here to serve. Our Savior embraced the identity of a servant and the reason why you and I can sit here with any sense of peace that one day things are going to be okay between us and God is because of what Jesus has done for us. And so this posture of service is, is not just something that we do, it's the very identity that we have. So as we think about how it is we are to make decisions, not just in our life, but this next week, I found that the best grid to make decisions in this world is to consult our identity, not our inconveniences. It's to think about who we are, not what it'll cost us. Um, Yeah, on Wednesday of this week, yeah, I got sick, so I went to the minute clinic on Friday because I couldn't see my doctor. And so I'm sitting behind this wooden thing and it looks like a desk when you walk up. Um, and this old guy walked right up to the desk. I um, mean, he looked at me and started to talk to me. He said, Hey, you know, Hey, I stepped on a staple and um, I'm not sure if I need a tetanus and just starts to go down the whole thing. Um, and I stand up and I show him my clothes and I said, sir, I don't work here. Um, so that was just a polite way of me saying, um, sir, I know you're in pain, but I'm sick as well, and I don't want to be bothered with your problems. There's somebody else that can come out and serve you. Well, when the nurse came out, she looked at him and she said, what's wrong? The difference was that I was there, and I was sick too. I wasn't really there to serve him, but the nurse came out. And her job was to, that's who she is. That's what she does. She didn't view the conversation with him as an inconvenience because she was left in the minute clinic to serve them. I want you to know, y'all, we were left here on this earth to serve. That is our identity. So what that means is that this week, as you're faced with decisions that you have to make, Your first question is not, what will it cost me? Your first question is, how can I be of help? So fathers, when you get home and you've had a long day and you're tired, but you know that you need to shepherd your wife and your kids in the word, you don't say, what will it cost me? I'm tired. I've had a long day. You say, God's actually left me here to make my wife and my kids more godly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take 10 minutes and I'm going to read the Bible with them and I'm going to pray with them so that I leave them better than I found them. As you find yourself on your way home and you're tired after a long day and your roommates' emotions just gossip out their feelings and you think, I've had a long day, I love you, I just don't care right now. You don't ask, 
what will it cost me? You ask, how can I be of help? Because at the end of the day, you were left here to serve. And if you don't know where to start, if you feel like, all right, John, I could start there, but what do I need to do? Here's, here's just four things that you can think through. I'm not going to uh, elaborate, but just four things. Ask yourself, is there a promise from Scripture that they need to believe? Sometimes you just need to remind them of something that God says. Is there a practice that they need to adopt? Sometimes you have there's something that people need to, to do. Three, is there a pattern of sin that needs to be confronted? Sometimes you just got to tell people to stop. Or is there a praise that you need to give? Sometimes you need to just look and tell folks, good job. I'm proud of the way that you've grown in this. And the list goes on and on and on. But the main thing is about our posture changing. Not from what will it cost, but how can I help? Good orientations by themselves don't make for good businesses. But they are a first step. And so what... What I want is just for us as a church in this week to just take that first step together and do all that we can to change our posture from thinking, what will it cost to how can I help? You were made for so much more than vacations and working your job and binging Netflix on the weekends. You were saved for so much more than just enjoying the fruits of your hard work. Let's change our posture, y'all. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Uh, We ask that you would help us to put this into practice, Father. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us to take the small steps. Uh, Would you remind us, Lord, none of us have to hit a home run when it comes to faithfulness to you this week, Father. We just have to step up to bat and try our best to hit a godly single and get on base. So just help us to take the small steps. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.